And now before we come to the Word of God, I'd like for us to bow in prayer on this uh, very special day in our culture, a day when we honor motherhood. Would you join me please as we pray? Father, I thank you this morning for the gift of mother. For each one of us looks to that one, that very special one in your plan that brought us into the world. We thank you for the nurture, the love, the gentleness, the example that godly mothers have set before us. And Father, I thank you for those mothers here within our church who are seeking to set that example now in a very difficult time in the world. When pressures are upon them and upon their families to the extreme, grant to them that special grace from the Spirit of God to be able to fulfill and find satisfaction in that highest of roles that you've planned. And Father, we are mindful too that there are those in our church that desire to have children but have not been able to. And together as their brothers and sisters in Christ, we lift them up and pray that in your goodness and providence, if it be your will, that you would grant to them the desire of their hearts. And Father, we pray for those mothers who have lost children. That you would give on this day of undoubtedly many memories a special comfort. And may they sense your arms around them, your tender love and understanding. And may that help fill the, the void that remains in their lives. God, you have revealed yourself to us as Father. And yet you have many wonderful mothering qualities among your attributes. We are glad for the gentleness and love that you show to us. We're glad for the way that you discipline us faithfully. Teach us not to resist that, but to cooperate. And to understand then that it brings righteousness and peace to our lives. Now as we come to your word, we pray that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Guide us through this complex chapter. Open our understanding to it, but then apply it to our lives in ways that will send us away from here encouraged that we serve a sovereign God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you enjoy a biblical prophecy, this chapter, the 11th chapter of Daniel, is one that will thrill you. The angel, which had been sent from God, gave to Daniel information which covers a span of nearly 400 years. 
and then beyond that. Now just imagine that. Having understanding of what was going to happen over hundreds of years to come in the future. Most of us today can't tell what's going to happen tomorrow. I can tell what's going to happen for the next seven years. And I'll explain why. This last week I was working on a project in our home. My wife had wonderfully papered the hallway in the upstairs of our house. It looked so nice and clean and fresh. All of the smudge marks from children's hands had been removed and covered over with this lovely paper. And it was my assignment after she had done all of the work to put up the mirror that I'd taken down from the wall. Do I have to say more? I put the two little brackets on the bottom of this mirror that was just four feet tall and about 18 or 12 inches wide. And the other two brackets were in the bathroom down the hallway. And so I backed away from the mirror and it clung tightly to the wall. So I walked into the bathroom and heard crash. I went out into the hallway and saw not only the mirror broken, but the wallpaper torn and scarred from the sharp glass of the mirror. So I know what's going to happen over the next seven years. But most of us today don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But Daniel is here given information for centuries to come, and in some respects it was much worse than a broken mirror. So specific and sweeping is this revelation that God gives that those denying a supernatural God must somehow deal with this. This is one of those passages that absolutely shreds their idea that God is not intervening in human affairs. And that God, if there is a God, is simply not interested in the world and in human history. This chapter proves exactly the opposite of that, and so their only recourse is to tear the book of Daniel apart and repaste it back together in such a way that they say this part of Daniel had to be written after these events. So that instead of it being prophetic, someone falsely is claiming to be Daniel and writing about it, lying about it actually, saying it's going to come to pass when it had already happened. And so their only recourse is to say that the book of Daniel is a fraud, but it's their theology that's a fraud. Indeed, this passage of Scripture is prophetic and covered hundreds of years to come from the lifetime of Daniel. Now for us today, most of it is history. Chapter 11, verse 2 up through verse 35 is prophecy dealing with events that now have occurred long ago. The last part of the chapter, verses 36 through 45, deal with events that are yet to come from our own day. Now today we're going to look at the first part of the chapter and see what God revealed to Daniel. Things to come, which did. Things to come from the day in which Daniel lived and which did come to pass. Now, we don't have time to read the text. I've encouraged you before to read it in advance. I have to hope you've done that or that you will do it later. 
but we're going to need to skim through the text and deal with it very quickly because it is broad and sweeping and complex really in its details and we don't have time to deal with all of those complexities. The verse 2 tells us of the future of Persia. Remember that's the nation in which Daniel is now living. Babylon has fallen. He is a leader in Persia. And what verse 2 tells us is that following Cyrus, there would be kings to come. And there are four of them that are suggested. And that's exactly what happened. Following Cyrus came Cambyses, 530 to 522 B.C. Following him came uh, a man who pretended to be uh, an heir to the throne. He is sometimes called pseudo-Smyrtus, a false Smyrtus, because after a few months on the throne, they found out that he, in fact, was uh, a perpetrator, and so they threw him out. And then to the throne came Darius I. He had a long reign from 521 B.C. to 486 B.C. And then came a fourth king, as Daniel mentions here, a fourth one that would stand out uh, in his riches and which would arouse his realm against Greece. And the fourth king was one who was called Xerxes. Now he is <clears throat> mentioned in the Bible, although not by that name. His uh, Hebrew name is Ahasuerus. Much easier to call him Xerxes, which is the, the Greek form of his name. He is the one who married Esther. And the king in that book is this king, the fourth one that Daniel mentions that would come. He reigned from 486 B.C. until 465 B.C. And in fact, not long after he became king, he aroused his forces, got an army of a million men together, according to the historian Herodotus, and attacked Greece. And he had hundreds of ships in his navy. The reason for his attacking Greece was the avenging of a defeat given to his father in 490 B.C. at Marathon. Xerxes, with his army, pushed across Greece. They reduced Athens to ashes, but then suffered an unexpected naval defeat, and as a result of that, had to retreat and eventually went back home to Persia. Verses 3 and 4, then, Daniel is given information regarding the future of Greece. <clears throat> now remember, we're skipping ahead <clears throat> more than a century at this point, or almost a century, up to uh, the day of uh, Alexander. It says that a mighty king will arise and will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. This is the same figure that we've seen earlier in, in uh, Daniel. It is the one described as a winged leopard in chapter 7 and verse 6 and as a conspicuous horn on the goat of Daniel 8, verses 5 through 8. It is Alexander the Great, who as the young king of Greece conquered Persia. Uh, Alexander had quite a history for about 11 years as he swept across the the Mesopotamian region. Uh, he, however, died early at the age of 33 because of malaria and alcoholism. And after his untimely and early death, as Daniel is told here, his kingdom was divided among four generals. 
these generals were not relatives, but they were very influential men under Daniel. They are the same ones as the four heads on the leopard of chapter 7, verse 6, and the four horns that appeared on the goat of chapter 8 and verse 8. To name them, they are Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. <clears throat> Cassander was given the region of Macedonian Greece to reign over. Lysimachus was given Thrace and Asia Minor. Ptolemy was given Egypt and Palestine. And Seleucus was given the northern part of Syria and all of Mesopotamia. And so the kingdom of Alexander the Great was thus divided exactly as Daniel is told it would be. That brings us then to verses 5 through 20, which gives a, a detailed prophecy of the future struggle between Syria and Egypt. The king of the north in these verses is Syria, and it is the Seleucid Empire or dynasty that was founded by Seleucus I. The king of the south, on the other hand, is Egypt in this text and it is the dynasty of Ptolemy, founded by Ptolemy I. In these verses you find the battles and maneuverings between the king of the north and the king of the south as it occurred over about a 225-year period and a succession of several kings or rulers. For our purposes in our study this morning, we simply want to mention the one that stands out the most in verses 15 through 19. And that is a man who was known as Antiochus III, or Antiochus the Great. For as the king of uh, the north, of the Syrian region, of the Seleucid Empire and dynasty, Antiochus III, conducted the most extensive campaigns since Alexander. His attempt was to try to reunite the empire in some way, to recapture the glory of Alexander, yet he failed to do that. His final campaign was directed against Rome, but he was stopped in his tracks by a commander, as Daniel is told that he would be. In history, we know that this commander's name was Cornelius Scipio Asiaticus, and having been stopped in his fight against Rome, Alexander, or excuse me, Antiochus III went back to his homeland, where he soon died. Rome enforced upon him some very severe peace terms. In order to have peace, he had to surrender all of the claims to the territory west of the Tarsus Mountains. Those mountains are in, on the east side of, the, um, of Asia Minor. He further had to give up one of the most powerful elements of his army, an elephant brigade. And he had to give up his navy. In order to have peace, he had to send 20 hostages to Rome. Their basic purpose was to ensure that he would pay a heavy tax or tribute to Rome that they exacted from him. Now, interestingly, one of the 20 hostages was his second son, who bore his name, Antiochus IV, and we'll talk about him in a moment. But upon the death, then, of Antiochus the Great, his first son ruled in his place. His name, his name was Seleucus IV. He reigned from 187 to 176. 
he is the one who is mentioned in verse 20. Because he was responsible now to pay this heavy tax to Rome, he in turn heavily taxed the people to pay the tribute. Word came to him of valuables that were hidden in the Jerusalem temple. And so he sent his tax collector there to plunder the temple in Jerusalem. The man's name was Heliodorus. And uh, this gentleman, as he was heading toward Jerusalem, so secular history tells us, had a terrifying vision. It was a vision of himself being attacked and flogged by angels. Being frightened of the vision, he turned around and went back, did not complete his assignment. We see that in the book of 2 Maccabees, the third chapter. Now, whatever the intrigue involved, uh, after this sometime, the same man, this tax collector named Heliodorus, poisoned the king, Seleucus hoping that he himself would be able to come to power. However, history doesn't mention him after his deed, for in fact, the younger son, who had been held hostage in Rome, had in the meantime been released and was living in Athens. And he heard that his older brother had been killed, and so he quickly went back to Syria and claimed the throne. He reigned from 175 to 163. This gentleman who is called, let me back up, this beast, not gentleman, who is called Antiochus IV. For he is described now in verses 21 through 35. The longest portion of this first half of the chapter is dedicated to this man. And you will notice that the Word of God says he was a despicable person. And indeed, he was evil, he was a tyrant, he was a liar and a deceiver. There was not anything honorable about Antiochus IV. It might be difficult for us to appreciate this man had we not known Hitler in our own generation. For he was very much like a Hitler. He was able to consolidate power amazingly. He liked to be called Antiochus Epiphanes, a Greek word which means the illustrious one. In fact, he claimed for himself deity. But behind his back, those who hated him called him Antiochus Epimenes. You can hear a similarity in the word. It means the madman, because that's what he was. This one is mentioned also earlier in the book of Daniel in the 8th chapter, verses 9 through 12, and then again verses 23 through 25. It is because of his profound evil, his deep hatred for the Jewish people, and because he foreshadows another yet future persecutor of the Jews, that so much space is given to him in Daniel chapter 11. He came to power by intrigue, as verse 21 suggests to us. It was not conferred upon him by natural succession, it did not come upon him because of conquering. It came upon him because of trickery. He illegally seized the throne of his murdered brother. Verses 23 and 24 tell us that he then attempted to bring peace to his kingdom and did this by redistributing the wealth. 
He would go to those who were wealthy and uh, besiege them and take their riches and give it to the poor. And in such a way, he tried to get the poor, which were far greater in number, of course, on his side. He was always playing one side against the other. He always had a hidden agenda somewhere, and that was his plan in redistribution of wealth. In verses 25 through 27, we see that he moves against Egypt. It talks again about the king of the south, talking about the Ptolemy dynasty ruling over Egypt. Now at this particular time, it's interesting that his own nephew was reigning in Egypt because Antiochus' sister, whose name was Cleopatra, was uh, married to the Ptolemy king of Egypt as a sort of a political alliance. And she bore a child, and in fact two of them, and her eldest was on the throne. So Antiochus' nephew was actually the one reigning in Egypt. But he marched upon Egypt. He uh, brought his smaller army against a very large Egyptian force and uh, defeated it near the Nile Delta. He took his own nephew prisoner, although it was a, a funny way of being a prisoner. He treated him well, and yet didn't allow him any liberty. When this man had been taken prisoner, the powers to be in Egypt put his brother next to him on the throne. And so now Antiochus had another nephew who was on the throne in Alexandria. Well, the nephew that he held prisoner didn't care for that either. And so that nephew and Antiochus got together at a table, as is suggested here by Daniel. And at that table, they sought to work out some kind of a plan whereby they could take this younger brother off the throne of Egypt, and Antiochus would put the older brother back on the throne, but he would be a puppet to Antiochus. And in that way, he would be able to reign over Egypt, which was his real desire. And so the two of them got together at the table. They both pretended friendship, and they acted like they were going to agree together on this to do it. But both of them were lying. They had hidden agendas on both sides, and nothing much ever came of it. Because they marched with their army against uh, or toward Alexandria and uh, took over Memphis, but they were unable to take over Alexandria. The armies of Egypt successfully stopped Antiochus IV in his advance, and as a result of that, he had to stop his advance and go back home. He, in the meantime, he installed his uh, imprisoned nephew as king over part of Egypt at Memphis. And so at this point, there were two kings of Egypt, one in Alexandria over the Ptolemy Empire and one installed by Antiochus over the part he had conquered and he was reigning in Memphis, not Tennessee, by the way. Now in verse 28, we find something interesting. It says, then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant. That is language that talks about the covenant of God with the Jews. And what happened was that Antiochus was very frustrated and angry that he was unable to take all of Egypt and had to settle for only part of it. And so as he turned to go back home, he marched across Palestine, and as he came to Jerusalem, 
he determined to rob the temple, and he did. And he desecrated it and murdered many of the Jews, the people whom he hated above all others. And he put in place a high priest who would do his bidding among the Jews. Well, then verses 29 through 32 tell us that a couple of years later, at the appointed time, this is 168 B.C. now, he decided to make another move against Egypt. And so he, he marched his forces again across Palestine, down against Egypt, but this time Rome intervened. Now Rome is growing in power, you see, all of this time, and does not want Antiochus to gain any more power. Now they knew Antiochus, because he had been held prisoner there, remember. He knew many of the people in the Senate. They wanted to stop him from attacking Egypt, and so they sent a very powerful uh, representative, along with their naval forces, those are the ships of Katim that are mentioned here, down to Egypt. And they enforced upon Antiochus a decree that he should not enter Egypt. They said, if you enter Egypt, Rome will come and do battle against you. And Antiochus didn't particularly want that at this point in his life. He hesitated to agree to this uh, forced stopping of his advance. The leader of the delegation from Rome drew a circle around Antiochus in the sand. And he said, don't come out of that circle until you decide what you're going to do. Well, Antiochus was absolutely humiliated by this. In front of all of his forces, this took place. And he had to bow to Rome. And because of the tremendous anger, the humiliation and the frustration that he had over the second failure to take Egypt, he again turned his armies around and marched across Palestine, this time doing even greater damage to the Jewish people, killing many of them, again ransacking the temple, seeking to destroy the Jewish religion, and giving encouragement to those who were renegade Jews who uh, acted wickedly toward the covenant, as it mentions in verse 32. You see, among the Jews, there were those who were cooperating with Antiochus and the Syrian forces, and then there were others, as are mentioned here, who knew their God, and who displayed strength and who took action. Well, these verses up through verse 35 now describe to us a period of Israel's history <clears throat> that is very dark. On December the 16th, 167 B.C., Alexander went into the Jewish temple. And there in place of the burnt offering, that sacred spot to the Jews in their temple, he erected a statue and an altar to Jupiter or to Zeus, one of the chief of the Roman gods, the Greek gods. And he offered there a pig upon this altar. Well, this, of course, was highly offensive to the Jews. Not only was there an idol to a false god in their temple, but a pig, a swine, the, the dirtiest of animals, of all the unclean animals to the Jew, the worst. The blood of that animal shed in their temple. It was tremendously offensive. And at the same time, he ordered that on the 25th of every month in honor of his own birthday, 
the Jews should offer a pig just like he had. Well, this is called here the abomination of desolations. And that is a term that is important because our Lord speaks of that again as we will probably see as we look into the next part of this chapter next week. As a result of this flagrant violation of the Jewish religion and conscience, there were some Jews who reacted. Among those were a priest by the name of Mattathias and his five sons. These men led what has come to be known as the Maccabean Rebellion. This was a protracted guerrilla warfare against the Syrian occupation forces and against the Jewish traders. It was a time that lasted about uh, three, four years. It was a time of tremendous suffering and persecution on the part of the Jewish people. But as is suggested to Daniel here, the result of it would be to refine, to purge, and to make pure until the end time. In other words, the result of it was that the faithful among God's people were refined and purified. Daniel does not here speak of Antiochus' death, but this insane man did finally die in 163, B.C., and his insanity was probably caused by syphilis. Now, do you understand what we've covered here in brief this morning? Daniel is living about 536 B.C., and God gives to Daniel understanding of the events that would take place over the next 400 years in that part of the world. And not just in the broad sense, but in specifics. Now, I'd like to go on with this chapter, but because of its length and of what we need to deal with next, we're going to wait until next week to talk about it. Let me just say that what we've had up to this point for us in 1990 is history. Long ago, it occurred. What we're going to look at next is yet future to our own day. For Daniel did not realize, he was not given the information, that between verses 35 and 36 there would be a gap of time, even thousands of years. We're going to see that there is another one who is coming upon the scene of the world who will be every bit the hater of the Jews and of the people of God, as was Antiochus IV, who has long been in hell. But before I bring this to a close, there are some things I'd like to say to you. First of all, as we look through this text and we think about it, we are confronted with a theological question. We see here that God can predict exactly what is going to happen in the future. The question is, Can God control it? You see, if he can't control what's going to happen in the future, then how can he be God? On the other hand, if God can and does control what's going to happen in the future, 
Why does he permit the rise of someone like Antiochus IV? Why didn't God cause his mother to be barren? Why didn't he die in childbirth? God can predict, but can he control? And if he controls, why does he allow someone like a Hitler, like an Antiochus, to come upon the face of the earth? <clears throat> well, that is a complex question that would take a series of messages to fully explore, but I'd like to suggest two or three thoughts to you this morning that may stimulate your thinking about it. One is that such evil as we see here, is the consequence of sin. Sin that indwells all of Adam's race. God is not the originator of sin. Antiochus IV and people like him, whether an exterminator of a race or an abortionist of one baby, are the inevitable results of human sin. And in one sense, it is the mercy of God that he allows us to see in people like Antiochus IV the grossness and the consequence of the evil that is in every one of us. You see, it puts into perspective why God so hates sin. Too often we look upon sin as a game. We see it as a, a harmless, trifling thing in our lives that we play with. But in fact, it is a very malignant principle and power. And it destroys. And just as it destroyed the person of Antiochus IV and those around him and over whom he reigned, so if we allow sin to reign in our lives, it will do the same. We may not be in the position to fulfill the evil that Antiochus did. But where sin reigns, it destroys and it brings death. The fact is that all of us need deliverance from it. And so I say that in one sense it is the mercy of God that he allows a person like this to come to the surface occasionally so that we see the kind of evil that lurks in every human heart. And it reminds us that we need deliverance from that evil that, was a, that is within us. A deliverance that does not come by self-reformation, but comes only by the work of Jesus Christ in saving us. It is only the power of the cross of Jesus Christ that can bring an end to the tyranny of sin in our lives. It is only the risen Christ who can bring the newness of his power within us so that we can rise above the sin principle that even yet dwells within the body of the believer. Secondly, I would say this, that God in his providence allows evil people to prosper and to even cause suffering so that those who suffer may come to the end of self-sufficiency and see the wretchedness of their own lives independent of God and be brought to repentance 
That seems to be what is said in verse 35. Part of the purpose of this suffering was to refine, to purge, to make pure. Suffering, you see, is a moral teacher. Suffering is not good in itself, but it may accomplish good, you see, if it brings the sufferer into submission to God. So why does God allow suffering? Well, in part, that it might teach us of our need for Him. That we might see the wretchedness of our own self-sufficiency and submit our lives and our wills to Him. Then I would suggest that God uses the egotistic tirades and murderous deeds of an Antiochus IV to ultimately accomplish His own good and beneficent purposes. We need to be careful of judging God by our own finite standards and judging Him too quickly. God does not work by our calendar. God is not limited in His purposes by our understanding. God has His own reasons And God has his own times. And whatever he allows to occur within his providence and sovereign plan, even if what he allows is evil and murder and suffering and persecution, in the end must accomplish his good purpose. And so as we are in the midst of suffering and in the midst of persecution, We must be careful not to judge God by our standards. There's a whole second issue I'd like to talk about briefly, and that is this. That God's plan for his own, for you and for me, does not preclude suffering. Whether that suffering arises from the normal hurts and injustices that are a part of the human experience, or if it be that particular pain and persecution that is the result of our godly living, we are not immune to suffering. God has not put up a hedge around us that says you cannot get cancer. You cannot die young. God has not said to us, if you live godly in Christ Jesus, I will deliver you from persecution. Indeed, he says just the opposite. He says, all who choose to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So if that is God's plan, if that is God's purpose that we also partake of the suffering of fallen humanity as well as that suffering that comes to us because we are saints of God. If that is God's plan, then let us be faithful in our suffering. Let us glorify God in the midst of our pain, whether that be a physical affliction or be an emotional loss and disappointment, 
or if it be mental illness and struggles. Let us glorify God in the pain that we have in our lives. Of course. Of course we can pray and ask God for grace. We can ask God for wisdom in our suffering. And we may even ask God for deliverance from it, if it be His will. But the point is, if it's not His will that we be delivered, then let us suffer to the glory of God. He tells us if we suffer with Him, we may then also be glorified together with Him. We have known little suffering for our faith in our own nation because of the constitutional freedoms of religion. But it is interesting how all of this is changing. And the change change seems to be picking up speed as we get into the 90s. Whereas the 80s was called the age of the evangelical, I believe that the 90s will be something much different than that. And it will be, I think, that by the end of this decade, those who choose to be obedient to the Word of God will, in fact, in our own culture, be suffering some kinds of persecution. Now, that happens occasionally now. But I think it will become more the general rule as time goes on. That's simply the direction of things toward the end of the age. And so, as we suffer... Let us glorify God in our suffering. Let us honor Him as Christians. Those who follow a Savior who left us an example in His own suffering and did not complain, but glorified His Heavenly Father. My final point of application today is this. I want to urge you to believe that your life today is under the control of a sovereign God. That He is arranging the circumstances in your life in order that He might fulfill His ultimate purpose for you. He is. I don't know the struggle you may be facing. I don't know the questions that are coursing through your mind even as I talk about this whole subject. But today, you and I can know that our hands, our lives, are in the hands of a sovereign God. Believe me, if He can control the destiny of empires like Persia and Greece and Rome and Babylon, it's a very little thing for Him to control the destiny of your life and mine. And He is. And we need our eyes open to see it. Glenna Oldham has written these words. High and marvelous are the mysteries in our almighty God. His ways are far beyond our understanding. Nothing is done by mere chance or happenstance. And should it seem so in my sight, O Lord, then surely blindness has come upon me. Oh, that we might lift up our eyes and see him who dwells in the heavens and know that all is well because he reigns. Let's pray.
<clears throat> just as you're seated there, that struggle that you're going through, that question mark that hangs in your life, perhaps even that resistance or that anger against God, will you give it to him? child of God, understand that he is in control in your life and he loves you. Not only does he mean you no harm, in the end he will bring good and blessing to you. Believe him. Father God, may we today rejoice afresh in the confidence of our faith. And may our eyes look up and see you, the one who dwells in the heavens and rules over the earth. And though we may be in the midst of war or pain, disappointment, or lack of understanding, May we be at peace because you reign sovereignly. In Jesus' name, amen.